Hello and welcome to the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. And on our program today, I've got a couple of cultural icons. I know, a terribly overused term icon, but I think it fits in this case, so I'm going to use it. Who I've got is John Waters and Philip Glass. Why them? Why now? Well, they're both performing in Big Sur and the vicinity in the coming weeks, which gives me a nice excuse to talk to them. John Waters is bringing his live one-man show to the Henry Miller Library in Big Sur on Saturday, August 13th. We'll be hearing from him in the first half of the hour today, talking about his life, his films, his preoccupations, and other fun stuff. And a note to you listeners who heard my uh, previous interview with John a couple of years ago. This is not that interview. This is a new one. And then in the second half of the show, we got Philip Glass, who will also be performing at the Henry Miller Library later this summer as part of a new arts festival that he's launching in Big Sur and Carmel Valley. It's called the Days and Nights Festival, and it'll include everything from music by Philip Glass and others to theater, dance, and film. Philip Glass will be telling us about it today. All right, part one of today's show, my conversation with John Waters. John, uh, you're going to be doing your, your live show at the Henry Miller Library in Big Sur. Um, how long have you been doing live one-man shows? I have been doing well. In the beginning, I don't know if there were one-man shows. I think at the very beginning I did two-man shows with Divine and I when, when we would travel to film series at colleges shows, which in the 60s really was the way you could see art films. It was the only way, really, especially underground movies and stuff. And we would come out in the beginning, and I would come out dressed very much like a hippie pimp, kind of, with like cowboy shirts from thrift shops with padded guitars or shrunken heads on it. I think even Steve Bader wears my shrunken head T-shirt and polyester. <laughs> my, uh, not a T-shirt, like a regular shirt. And, uh, and I would talk about nudist camp movies or, uh, or Dr. Butcher, M.D., or uh, movies like Door to Door Maniacs that actually did star Johnny Cash. And when I only met him once in my life and I brought up the movie and he said to his wife, June, come over here. Man <laughs> just mentioned a movie to me that no one has ever brought up to me in my entire life. <laughs> and then I would introduce Divine, who would come out and do an act very similar to Female Trouble, where he would throw dead fish in the... Uh, in the audience, he would have glamour fits, and then we'd have fake paparazzi come out in the big cities. And then always some poor hippie that we would find. We had a stolen police uniform and a short-haired wig that we put on him, and he would pretend to be a cop and come on stage and try to arrest Divine, and Divine would strangle him to death, and then the movie would start. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like jugglers, you know, like an opening act. And it, it, maybe it'll never be as good as that. Did people want you to be crazy and dangerous in those days? Yeah, but they were hippies, which was so funny because our audience really turned out to be angry hippies that later turned into punks. There were always minorities that couldn't get along even within their own limited. Uh, it would be like bears that couldn't get along with other bears. They would have been my audience. <laughs> Oddly enough, they wanted us to break all the taboos that they believed in, not so much as the straight society. Um, and <laughs> it wasn't totally a gay audience at all. It was some gay people, but it was bikers, too. I mean, it was it was always... A weird crowd that that had an uneasy truth in my audience. But but over the years, you've become you know I mean clearly a guy who's very accepted by the mainstream and completely. I can't get anybody mad. I even tell them their cat hates them, and people don't get mad. And it does, by the way. I mean, and you're um, you're this but, beloved elder now, and uh, and and and, and uh, do people 
who know you only through the the battle days think you're going to be again this nihilist, this maladjusted. Well, wait till you hear what I say. It is pretty <laughs> rude. It's it's completely rude. And I just was the speaker for the National Convention of Mayors in Baltimore, and I did this filthy world. Now I did a, a very different version of it. I made a lot of political jokes in it. But I said the mayor of Baltimore introduced me, and I said, this is a brave woman. She hired me, and she doesn't know what I'm going to say tonight. These are all the mayors of, of, of the United States. And they were howling, actually. One African-American mayor said when I left, uh, he said to me, um, I thought Richard Pryor was crazy. <laughs> but there was a few in the audience. I could see, like, some stone face just looking, glaring at me, because I said, you all are judging this guy, Wiener, but your kids are doing the exact same thing while you're here tonight. Yeah, absolutely. But in general, I mean, given what we can see just on any given night on TV um, and, and the way this has changed in the last 30, 40 years, people are far less shockable than they used to be and, you know, pretty much expect to be outraged in some way or other. I know shock's too easy. I'm weary of people trying to shock yeah, people. Yeah. You know, yeah. to me, Hollywood does that a lot now, and I think mostly kind of in a crass way. Um, I, I was trying to surprise you and get you to think about things you know, I never. The only time I make people mad is when I'm in San Francisco and I say I like the public transportation there. People go crazy. <laughs> I can say that I want Leslie Van Houten very seriously, one of the Manson women, to be released from jail. Nobody gets mad about that. They get mad. They, then blogs come out. Has he gone insane when I say that the buses are nice there? Well, you could. I know that there is one strategy that you could use that would definitely get people angry. If if, if you became a hardcore right winger, I think. But I don't want. I don't <laughs> want to get even right wing people like me. I do. There's a Bill Maher show with. What's the guy's name? I like the one that the one that is like the right wing Abby Hoffman. The one that that caught Wainer. You mean uh, Andrew Breitbart? Yeah, I got along with him fine. Yeah. 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 Did, did he like you? Yeah, he did actually. We got along totally fine. People were horrified. <laughs> But, you know, I mean, I imagine you and he would probably differ on a hell of a lot of things. <laughs> we would, but he's just, he's in the same racket I'm in. It's just on the other side. And he told me that his uh, role model when he was young was Abby Hoffman. And he does use similar tactics just on the other side. He's embarrassing the enemy through humor, and I'm mm -hmm. for that, too. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I am a big supporter of Planned Parenthood. I'm a bet for everything. I'm against the Arizona governor. Any liberal cause, I, believe me, I'm pretty much for. Uh, there might be a few. I'm not for the rights of adult babies. Lock them up! <laughs> <laughs> well, some of the, uh, the the deviations, let's call them, that you sort of embraced in, in your films, um, going all the way back and, and, you know, continuing through some, some fairly recent ones, right? You know, you were sort of saying, look, uh, these, these taboos, these fears we have, these people aren't really as scary as you think they are. Weren't you saying that, sort of? Yeah, I think they are. That You know, if somebody wants to do that, just be glad you don't have to. But, but <laughs> they're not hurting anybody. As long as people are adults and they choose to do something. Now, I, I have tried to tell the audience that it's okay to choose things that are even neurotic, as long as, even if they cause you pain, if you have the choice to choose them and think, well, it's worth it. I get pain, but I like it. Um, that's an option, too. It's only if you repeatedly choose to do things that bring you pain over and over again, then you've got to break that cycle. But if you can learn to live with it and like it, well, that's okay. If it's victimless, right? Well, if you're the victim and you like being the victim, <laughs> I guess it's okay. Self-victimhood. Well, all yeah. masochists are in control. You know, masochists always, I love topping from the bottom. That's what they do. You know, masochists are the ones in control. The sadists are the stupid ones that just do what they get told to do. Are you into S&M? No. 
was no. <laughs> I didn't think oh, I so. Was, I think I'm at the beach. S and M really looks stupid at the beach. <laughs> Um, I learned a number of things about you that I didn't know from your most recent book, Role Models. And one uh, is that you keep a set of brass knuckles by your bed. Is that right? I do, just because they look great. Uh-huh. So it's not for use of any kind. Uh... Well, I hope not. <laughs> I haven't had any troubles lately. But uh, no, the only people I have, the people that would ever, maybe you would be afraid of, they are always in my house. They want to steal them. They love them. They always ask me if they can borrow them. It's kind of a classy, old-fashioned uh, self-defense weapon, isn't it? Well, it, it just looks nice. It's yeah. a sculptural piece. I keep it as art. Yeah, yeah. Um, hey, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about fandom, um, because, you know, your book, Role Models, is about, at least in part, about some of the people you've been a fan of. And, um, you know, now you're famous, and you have a ton of fans. I've been to one of your live performances, and it wasn't an ordinary performance, because a lot of the people came, you know, Oh, like family members. They had signs that were directed at you. They had, I think they might have had some gifts. They dressed in ways they thought would please you. I mean, clearly, you've become this this major figure that, that attracts... Um... Well, that's very sweet and very nice, and, you know, those are my fans. And it, that's another reason I travel so much is because, being you know, to keep a career going for 40, 40 years, you, you have to keep reinventing yourself. You have to be out there pressing flesh. That's what I said to the mayors. Don't think I don't know what you all do. I've held babies that have puked on me for a photo op. Um, but um, you being famous and now having, you know, a rather large number of fans yourself doesn't seem to have decreased the awe or uh, idolization that you feel for your own, you know, so-called role models, right? Well, my role models gave me permission to be who I am today. They let, every one of them in that book led a more extreme life than I had to live, whether it was, it was really being, having great success early, like Johnny Mathis, or, or making a horrible, horrible, insane decision like Leslie Van Houten when she was 17 years old and met a madman. And, and what can you do? You've been in jail 40 years. How can you ever make up for something that terrible except by becoming a person that was better than you would have been if the crime hadn't happened? And, that, and she has become that. Uh, so I, all these people have inspired me to see how people can get through life. I mean, it isn't fair. I certainly don't believe in karma. I know so many great people that died and such jerks that are still living. Um, I, I certainly don't believe in any of that. I believe it's uh, the, the day we're born, nature is conspiring to kill us. And so you make the best of it. But um, I, I, I think that basically I believe in the goodness of people. Uh, I do. I, I be, I'm an optimist. I believe in the opposite of what I was taught, original sin, that you're born guilty. What a terrible thing to tell a child. As a, as a guy now, who though, who is a celebrity, I, I'm t- kind of interested in whether you become less um, subject to celebrity fantasies of your own, you know, meeting someone or being around someone who you... Um... I've met, you know, every person that I've wanted to meet in life, I almost have. And and are you like a starstruck kid sure. again? Yeah. I, I mean, yes, I can be starstruck, but but um, but different people. I mean, I want to meet Gita Serini, who's this you know very <laughs> intellectual English writer that writes about crime, and and I she wouldn't meet with me. So there's still people that that don't want my fandom. Um, I I like the high and the low. You know, I um I I didn't follow this murder case of what's her name Casey uh, whatever her name is, but I keep thinking, what is it like to be her now, to be that hated. I mean, I, whether she did it or not, I'm not that interested in. I, 
she probably did something. But, but to see this mob scene on television going after of newscasters, to me, I'm glad she got up because maybe then their heads will explode. I guess the question is, you know, why do we as people, as a culture, whatever, why do we spend so much of our time focused on these these high profile cases, which in many in many instances really it's just one murder case. There's a lot of murders out there. Why do we get so? Because it's theater. Yeah, and, yeah. and because nobody really knows the answer. No, if if look, all these cases, if somebody kills somebody and then kills themselves, you never remember those people's names. Right. So they're over with. Uh, but somebody like this who keeps denying it and said she didn't do it, and then every day there's different melodrama, it is a soap opera. You mentioned Leslie Van Houten, and uh, she was a member of the, the Manson family uh, involved in the La Bianca murders, um, and, and she is a, one of the subjects in your book, Role Models. And you, at the time, in, in 1969, when the Manson members of the Manson family were put on trial, you were totally obsessed with that. I was, and, and I, I look back on that. I apologize almost for some of that. Uh, you know, I named characters. I dedicated a movie to them and stuff, and I, I wasn't being really very realistic that these were real people and real victims and everything. Um, well, you became sort of, um, I don't know, is, is, is Gawker the right word initially? You went to some of the trials? Yeah, you... and there were many of those people there. I mean, this was, the Manson trial was one of the first big, giant media trials, and I think... Uh, I never got over it. You can see the influence of that in all my movies, certainly Pink Flamingos, certainly um, in all of them, really. In Serial Mom, I've had a trial scene in almost every movie I've ever made. That, that's true. And, um, but you went from being a guy who was fascinated with the spectacle to a guy who actually got to know some of the people involved, including Leslie Van Houten. Um, who you yeah, got I to... taught in prison, too, and that had a lot to do with it. That had a lot to... Uh, to into sort of changing the sensational aspect of it when I went there, because I was I was at the time in the eighties writing for Rolling Stone and stuff. It was late seventies actually, and uh, or I can't remember seventies or eighties. And they wanted me to interview Manson, and I said I had no in- interest in interviewing him. You know, to me it was much more important to the people that came from a similar background than I did that were involved. So I wrote to her, and she said, "No, I, I don't want to be in Rolling Stone for what I did. I'm, I'm, I'm horrified by what I did." Uh, I don't want, I've never, would never sign an autograph. It pains me when people ask that. So I kept writing, and then we just came, became friends. And I didn't write about her for 20-some years. And um, I finally, at the end, asked her, of course, if I could write about her for the book and explain to her that it was about redemption, and it was about people that uh, had, had influenced me to be brave in life. And, and she said I could. And, uh, and I think I, I gave uh, um, as fair as I could be. I mean, she's my friend. Uh, I'm not a prosecutor. Um, but... When anybody goes up for parole, you get your friends to write a letter. So this was the very best letter I could have written. Uh, and you portray her as someone who, at the time of the, the Manson murders, was young, impressionable, pulled into this, this cult-like family uh, with this crazy, charismatic, uh, bullying leader. No, he was a pimp, basically. Uh-huh. Uh, but Leslie doesn't let herself off that hook that easily. She said, a cult leader cannot be a leader without cult members, and I was one. I made him a leader. Uh, I shouldn't have taken all the LSD. She doesn't blame it all on anything. She blames it on herself. She said, I did it. it, it it's me. She doesn't even hate Manson. She doesn't even think about him now. He's just an old man you'd move away from in a bar. At, at some point in your essay about her, you compare yourself to those Manson family members in the sense that 
you were taking a lot of acid, they were taking a lot of acid, you were pushing the boundaries in your films, you were... Yeah, but it was very different. We did it in movies, they did it for real. But you wonder, you wonder to yourself, if things had been different, uh, could you have crossed that line from being sort of an antisocial filmmaker to kind of a sociopathic... Uh... I wonder that, I wonder that's a fair thing to wonder, but I don't believe it, because my parents um, always made me feel safe, you know? I wasn't looking... For a spiritual leader, I was the Manson of our family. Right, right. But, but at the same time, <laughs> when people I asked Mink Stoll to set her hair on fire in a movie, she said no. You know, uh, I, I, people said no to me. Uh, it was group madness too when we made Pink Flamingos. But um, we were working together to scare the world in hopefully an artistic way, and uh, they scared the world in a real way. And and that is why it is it is such a terrible, terrible. Similar thing, but yet completely opposite in a way, because no one ever got hurt making my movies. But um, when you were, you know, directing the films and getting people to do stuff that was like really crazy, how, how did you do that? Did you did you try to persuade them? You used the hard no, sell. They just said yes. Okay. I mean, you're talking about the end of Pink Flamingos. I, you know, I'm not I'm not a Charlie Manson. It was one take, um, <laughs> and I, I said to him, "Will you eat dogs?" He said, "Yeah." Right. Right. It was, it was no brainwashing, really. Uh, but whenever you're making a movie, by the end of the movie, and it was the very last shot we did in the whole movie, you become a little brainwashed that you're that character. It is a group madness. When you've been making a movie for months, you don't live in the real world. You are separated. You are isolated the same way cults are formed. So making a movie, especially a low-budget and no-budget movie that that was, running from the cops, actually, we've been arrested for making movies, um, was in a way a, a, a very exciting way to be bad, but it was artistically bad. That's very, very different than criminal bad. Um, we could do every horrible crime that we could ever think of, but it was fake. It was, it was done to make hippies scream when they were stoned on marijuana, watching it in some midnight movie. Uh, um. You know, back when you were making those films, you had this this small group of sort of outlaw, you know, actors. But now we look at uh, the mediascape and we see that the the, the culture almost at large uh, through things like reality TV, everybody is debasing themselves for the camera, um, right? Not everybody. Well, but... almost. But but you don't see any sort of connection between, say, Pink Flamingos and Jersey Shore? No, I think they're <laughs> the, almost the exact opposite because Pink Flamingos only played and did well in the classiest art theaters and the richest neighborhoods. Uh -huh. um, Jersey Shore, I would imagine, has a mass audience. Pink Flamingos had a tiny audience. Yeah. A mass audience of people that mostly, I would say middle-class people, that watch it to feel superior and, make, and to think that the people in it are low-class. Uh -huh. So to me... That is the opposite politics of my movies. It's the opposite. I have joy. I look up to everybody in my movies. I don't look down on them. And I think all reality TV is looking down on the people and feeling superior to them and laughing at them. Mm -hmm. I ask you to come along with us into a strange world and laugh with us. I think that's very, very different. Yeah, and, you know, your movies seem to be saying, look, you know, what you're calling perversion and freakiness is not as scary as you think. These are still human beings, and there's still a, an element of play in all of this. And, you know, maybe it, 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 it made a lot of people feel better about themselves watching your movies. 
I think it did, but and sometimes it's fun to be scary. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, who wants, that's why I'm so, you know, today about in the gay world, we always have to be good now. It's like <laughs> so dreary to me. I mean, you know, kind of I miss being illegal. Uh, of course, I think we should get married I and mean, do whatever you want, but at the same time, um, are we running for sainthood now? <laughs> I, I think gay people can still be bad. And you're tuned to the 7th Avenue Project on KUSP, Central Coast Public Radio. I'm Robert Polly, and the guest on this part of our program is John Waters, who's bringing his live one-man show to the Henry Miller Library in Big Sur on Saturday, August 13th. We'll give out more details later in the program. Um, tell me about uh, the first gay bar you went to. You, you write about this in your book, and it was called The Chicken Hut. In... Well, it was called The Hut, or, but people referred to it as The Chicken Hut. <laughs> and it was <laughs> each table had telephones, and people called up, Hi, I'm at table three. Would you like a drink? They, and I thought, you know, I might be queer, but I ain't this. <laughs> <laughs> and then I went to Provincetown, and I thought I might be queer, but I am this. <laughs> and it was just two different worlds, and there is a very straight gay world, and, there, and, and I never fit in there. I still don't. You know, I'm the only gay man you ever met that's never been to the baths or the gym. Um, I, I always say I'd go to the gym. I always get every year at the Spirit Awards when I get a gift bag, and you get a free year membership to the gym, and they always have this big muscle guy saying, well, would you like to come? And I say, yeah, but I want the body of a junkie. Can you give me exercises for that? And they look like it's so uptight when you say that. Because I'd go to the gym if I could get the body of a junkie, which is what I had when I was young. I wasn't a junkie, but I like skinny. And, you know, and I've done way worse than go to the baths. It's just, to me, walking around in a towel is not my best look. <laughs> well, when you were young, you know, in the, say, the 60s, when, when the, the hut or the chicken hut, as some called it, was um, in full bloom... How did you hook up with people? Well, I went to other places. You know, I, you know the, uh, st- Bo- I went to hipster. Bohemia is always the world I want to live in. Hipster bars, there's always three or four crazy gay people in straight hipster bars. They're the ones I like. Uh, was there a signaling? Was there a gaydar uh, no, aspect? No, you could just tell that they were other kids that didn't fit in and, and, you know, and had straight friends and gay friends and hung around with everybody else. And it wasn't, you know, whatever they were, gay wasn't the first thing they described themselves. Um, you know, I've had people come up to me and say, oh, um, I'm an agent and all my clients are gay. I thought, well, are they any good? You know, uh, <laughs> you know I'm a filmmaker that's always said he was gay. I would never made a big deal about it. But to just be called a gay filmmaker somehow to me is, is, is ghettoizing yourself. Were you ever criticized... Um for, you know, focusing your films not on gay rights. I mean, your films weren't about, you know, gay liberation at all, right? I mean, they were about other well, kinds of things. they were about liberation. Exactly, yeah. But not all, just gay, but, about all liberation. Yes. Well, yeah, and I, no, I don't know how to have some I mean, funny, the gay press has always been okay to me. Sometimes they attack me because I say purposely gay. But they're curious, you know, once Out Magazine, I like Out Magazine, I'm a subscriber. But I was on the cover, and I wore for the cover shoot this little button that says, I love Dick Doc. And Dick Doc is a place in Provincetown that's under the piers where it's a public sex <laughs> yeah, place. And, yeah. <laughs> and they airbrushed the button off and made my eyes blue. And I thought, what was that editorial meeting about? Because I'm sure I was the oldest person ever on the cover of Out. So uh, I thought, well, isn't that odd? I'd like to have been a fly on the wall and heard what that was about. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, last time we talked, we talked a lot about your 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 childhood and your youth, and, and you told me some fascinating stories. Uh, for instance, the fact that very early, like when you were really young, you started um, 
describing yourself sort of in the third person to your parents. I, I know this kid who does these things. Well, I, that was, I guess, psychologically probably probably very peculiar. I would come up and say there's this bad kid in school, and he only draws with a black crayon. He only does black drawings. And then my mother said she mentioned it to the teacher, and they said, well, that's your son. <laughs> exactly. So, I don't remember that. My mother told me that story, so I think, God, I wonder what that means. I mean, I went to a shrink, and I believe in going to shrinks, but... Uh, I guess I was I was testing. Maybe that was a test screening on my own personality. And I, I love the story you told me about having fantasies about bad girls and even going so far as to steal um, blank report cards, fill them in with Fs, and imagine yeah. imagine the bad girl who'd flunked every class. I did that. I would steal a report card off the teacher's desk, which you could be expelled for, really. <laughs> I mean, a blank report card. They're really hard to get. And then I would just go home and fill it in with straight Fs. And I have that scene in Polyester where the daughter shows to me and says, look, Mom, look at my got my report card today. <laughs> the exact same thing. And just sit there and fantasize about the ins- the bad kids that would get this and how the parents would go so crazy. But I never showed anyone. See, I always had all these secret things I did, but it didn't make me an unhappy child. It made me a creative child. But I, I had no one to share this with. So, so my question is, given your fascinating... Um uh, coming of age, uh, you ever think about making an autobiographical film, or does that make you cringe? They all are. Every one of them. <laughs> okay, okay, me. okay. <laughs> I mean, you could name any scene in any one of my movies, and I could probably tell you where the idea or part of it was hatched. Um, yeah, I think I'm in every one of them. Well, I learned, again, from uh, role models that um, I knew that you had been fascinated by car crashes as a kid, and I knew that there were such things in your movies, but I, what I hadn't known is that you... Uh, in a really tragic episode, um, hit a man and killed him. He jumped. He sort of walked out in front of your car. Yes, yeah, I've done everything. Um, that was, yeah, and I never told that story for obvious reasons, and I don't think I make fun of it in the book. It no, was you a don't. terrible thing that happened, but, no. but it wasn't my fault. So um, I didn't really feel guilty about it, because uh, even, thank God, a policeman saw it and saw what happened. The guy just walked right out of a safety aisle and an old guy right in front of the car. But that scene is in every one of my movies, flipping up on the hood and your face against the windshield. You can see that in about three or four of my movies. So um, it was the closest I could get. I, I never murdered anybody. So I've never even been in a fist fight. And I always say, because I'd lose, maybe if I'd win, I might have been a monster. I don't know. But uh, I guess it was the closest I could ever imagine of the horrible thing that Leslie did, even though it was the opposite. It was completely not my fault. But I remember my grandmother calling up and saying, we're praying for this man. I thought, why didn't you ask God why he picked my car to walk in front of? Um, I, I felt bad, and thank God that policeman saw me, because I looked at the time so disreputable. And it was in the middle of the day. There was no question of liquor or drugs or anything like that. And I was with Mink Stoll, who at the time was in her like religious whore look, as she called it. And, and uh, you know, we would have been just the sight of us, would, we would have gotten the death penalty. Oh, you would have been a prosecutor's dream. Yeah, but they didn't really, They because no one said it was, you know, it was a horrible accident. Yeah. Um, you mentioned Leslie Van Houten again, and of course you were, you're very interested in, in how she could have fallen under the sway of a guy like Manson. And you're, you're also... No, a, I said I wish she'd come with us. She'd be a studio executive. <laughs> but you're also a friend of Patty Hearst, who, who also, um, you know... Uh, a very different story. She was kidnapped. She was home doing her homework yeah. and dragged out of the house. And And... 
And yes, became brainwashed, but, but in order to survive. And everything she ever said was true. And I can see why the SLA believes that she joined them, because they didn't know her before, and they didn't know her after. They knew her when she did what she had to do to stay alive. So they don't know her any other way. You, you became a friend of hers, of course, after she was released and all of that. Yes. But, um... And she made a movie with me so she could stop being a famous kidnap victim. She's been in a number of your films now. Yeah, she has. She's a great friend, and she's a good comedian. But when she was with the Symbionese Liberation Army in 1974, as Tanya, the the girl posing in front of the flag with a machine gun, um, I think it was a machine gun, were you still then in your bad girl phase? Did you think she was oh, yeah. cool then? Oh, yeah. And I, yeah, I wanted her to be that. And later when we met, she said, it's because of people like you, I went to prison. <laughs> I changed my mind. No, I was the wrong. I was, I was for her to be like that then. And it wasn't until I actually saw the Paul Schrader movie called Patty, which is, which is told from her book, that I began to see that she was telling the truth and that she wasn't that and that she was a survivor and she stayed alive. And even she doesn't, you know, she'll say what happened to me is very hard to explain or everything, but, but, it, but she's alive. And they're all, they're all dead or went to prison for a long time. And she did not join. She, even that day in the bank, which she said, God, that picture, of course, it'll be in her obituary. But the FBI, when they released that picture, they cropped it in some. You don't see that the guns were pointed sort of towards her. If she had done anything, they would have shot her. But, but she wisely didn't. And I said to her once, where is that bank? She said, I don't know. You think I know where that bank is? She was locked in a closet, went there and came home. Uh, she's, she's really never been back to San Francisco, I don't think. Um, and she's, um, she survived it without any, I mean, today she's a great, great lady. She's a wonderful woman uh, who leads a very, very nice life. Um, and uh, I think she survived something that none of us could have survived. I'm kind of curious, though, your interest in, in sort of brainwashing, because, I mean, Leslie Van Houten, um, Patty Hearst, and others who seem to have gotten well, involved. Cults, or, cults, cults yeah. to me. Yeah. Fascinating, and and I I wonder, even in the Jim Jones cult, um, did any of those people die happily? They believed it, so I don't know. I mean, it's a terrible thing what he did, and it's probably blasphemy to say that. And I I do on Memorial Day when I'm in San Francisco, go to the unmarked People's Temple, the grave in in Oakland, which is for the People's Temple, all the unclaimed victims, and I think it's very moving. And you see people come there that maybe their families were there and everything. And it is incredibly moving. It's, it's still an unexplained thing. But if you're in a cult at the height of it, are you happy? I, I don't know. I'm, I'm curious, though, more about your interest in it. I mean, it, you really have investigated this. You've really spent a lot of time thinking about it and meeting All people. All human behavior interests me. And, yeah. the one, and the behavior I can't understand is what interests me the most because there's no fair answer. And there never will be. Um, what sorts of things occupy your thoughts these days and may make their way into your next projects? Oh, I don't know. That's hard to say. I mean, you know, because I'm writing the speech I'm doing, I'm, I have a Christmas show I'm doing. I just finished a, uh, uh, an art catalog about the Warhol Liz Taylor painting. So I'm always working on something. Uh, is there anything this week that obsessed <laughs> me? I guess the, the insane public reaction to that murder case uh, 
And uh, the Murdoch thing is, is very interesting to me um, because it's such a giant scandal that is spreading all over the world and investing and, and, you know, getting police. And, and I'm not a, I don't hate Robert Murdoch like a lot of people do. I buy the New York Post every day. Um, I think he actually made the London Times better. So uh, I, I'm not an enemy of tabloids. I read them. Um, I think some of them are kind of great to read. Uh, the headline when I... When Tina, when Ike Turner died, was Ike beats Tina to death? Hey, that's, that's brilliant. <laughs> There's people that have talent at writing tabloid headlines. Do you watch Fox News? Another no, Murdoch no, no, property? no, I don't watch TV as yeah. much ever. I just watched The Wire is the last thing I watched, and I did watch The Night of the Verdict just to see newscasters on stations that I won't name that I used to respect. Uh, I don't think Anderson Cooper would do that. Uh, I, 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 I just think it was amazing, this mob scene that they had. And uh, it, it shocked me, actually, because I, I didn't realize how the people, newscasters sobbing and something, have a little professionalism. Just amazing to me. Uh, why didn't you get a cameo in The Wire? It's set in Baltimore. You're one of Baltimore's most well, famous citizens. Well, because everybody that works on all my movies works on that. Vincent Perenio, who did the made the trailer, and Pink Flamingos is the production designer of The Wire, Pat Moran Cassett, who's done all my movies, uh, many of the crew in it, because I'm friends with David Simon. I married David Simon and his wife. I'm an ordained minister, and I never told that story until they did, because it was secret. So you, uh, you know, officiated over the service. Um, what kinds of things did you say? John Waters well, performing a marriage. Say. You know, I, that's why I don't do it anymore, because people used to expect me to write some witty thing. Oh, no, thanks. <laughs> Uh, I asked them I asked to supply the, the uh, words, and I did it, and it was fine. It, I, I do it seriously when I do it. I'm not making a mockery of it. Oddly enough, I've never done a gay wedding. I've only done about 13. They've all been straight, and they're all still married except one, the first one. I was going to ask what your track record is. Pretty good. It is pretty good. I'm moving into exorcism <laughs> soon. Well, John, I, I know that you do a million and one things. I'm going to let you get back to them. Uh, what I didn't, I didn't realize that you were also... Um, a religious leader? <laughs> yeah, licensed to perform marriages. Uh, well, yes, and, I'm, I'm, um, and I, I usually have to know you really well to do it. And uh, I, I'm serious when I do it, and I want them to work. And I don't say yes to one that I, that I um, don't think will, will last. Well, golly, it's been, you know, as always, it's been really fun talking to you, John. Well, thank you, really and I come it. see me in Big Sur. I haven't been to Big Sur since I drove through there, like, when I was young, so I'm really excited about going back there. Were you a Henry Miller fan? Yeah, uh, well, I'll tell you this. Sexus, Plexus, and Nexus, those three books, were the first Grove Press things that I had that my mother, when I went, destroyed and then denied she did it. <laughs> so I have a great memory of sexus especially <laughs> even though there wasn't a lot of sex in there for me but um i certainly love grove press and i think henry miller was one of the people that kept grove press alive and olympia press for a long time pity you never got to meet him yeah i didn't but i'm happy to be playing there that's perfect well great thanks a lot john okay john waters will be performing his one-man show and evening with john waters on saturday august 13th at the henry miller memorial library in big sur for more information, go to henrymiller.org. And coincidentally, Hairspray the Musical, based on the John Waters movie Hairspray, has just opened at Cabrillo Stage. It runs through August 14th. You can find out more and get tickets by going to cabriostage.com or calling 831-479-6154. This is the 7th Avenue Project on KUSP. I'm your host, Robert Polly. Now for part two of today's show, we're going to feature another prolific creator 
who, like John Waters, hails from Baltimore, and who, like John Waters, will also be performing in Big Sur and Environs in the coming weeks, namely Philip Glass. He's actually presenting an entire arts festival in collaboration with the Henry Miller Library and Hidden Valley Music Seminars. It's called the Days and Nights Festival, and it includes music, film, dance, and poetry. It runs from August 19th through September 4th. This is its inaugural year. Here's my conversation with Philip Glass. Tell me about this festival. Did, did you create this, or, or, or were you part of the, the uh, instigation for this festival, the Days and Nights Festival? <laughs> I have to take the entire blame myself, <laughs> better or worse, I hope for better. Uh, and it came out this way. I, I've been playing in festivals for 40 years, and watching what other people did, and this and that. And at one point, uh, the possibility of where I came to Big Sur to play at the, at the uh, I played with Wendy Sutter at the... Um, I remember a library, well, maybe three years ago. Yeah. And I just loved it there. I loved the library. I loved the area. And, and it occurred to me, see, if I ever wanted to do a festival, I'd better do it now. Because, you know, the, it takes time to organize them, and then it takes time for them to grow and to get settled. And I thought, well, I think I can still do this. And I had ideas about that. I've been to all kinds of festivals. Most of them, for example, uh, uh, Tanglewood Festival will be about music, or the Vale Dance Festival will be about dance, or the Telluride Film Festival will be about film. And I was interested in something that was music, dance, theater, uh, poetry, and film. And how did it come to be set in um, both Big Sur and Carmel? Well, I wasn't the Henry Miller Library uh, performing about three years ago, and we will be there again this summer. Uh, we're using it this year also for the, uh, there's an outdoor performing space in a, in a little, tucked away in a little redwood uh, grove. And it's beautiful. And we have a nice new big stage. And we'll be doing, with my ensemble, we'll be doing the uh, Dracula score live to the to the film. That's the Todd Browning film with Bella Lugosi. Uh, it's a film I've done numerous times from different places, but uh, we haven't done it here. And I want to do it. And uh, it's a place that would be a very ideal place for that. So we have one venue. We can also do a lot of poetry there, too. So we have one venue in Bixar itself. We have the, uh, the uh, Hidden Valley Center, uh, Peter Merkel's place for the, for the other times. And, you know, uh, I think we might very well uh, be well served by having a, a number of places in the area, not always being in the same place. Uh, I'm thinking uh, in the future maybe the, uh, we might do dance there at the Hidden Valley because it's a very good dance place. They have a, actually have a dance rehearsal place there, too. So uh, I'm looking at places and what they have to offer and that are very sympathetic. For, uh, Magnus Turin, who runs the Honeymoon Library, has uh, been very supportive and, and, and helping me find people to work with. Philip, um, you obviously, you know, as a very well-established composer, someone who's been involved in all kinds of art forms, going way back from, from the visual arts to performing arts of various kinds, film, uh, what is it that, y that you were missing, really, uh, that, that you felt that only a, a festival like this could, could, could bring? That's a, a very interesting question. Now, let's think back a little bit about how festivals work. Uh, mostly, in the past, we've had festivals that were run by artists. It would be maybe Bernstein started the Tanglewood Festival. Um, uh, Minotti did the uh, Spoleto. Uh, those festivals always stood out to me in a certain way because 
uh, you know, a lot of festivals are run by administrators, and they can be excellent, no question. I mean, Ravinia's like that, and Wolfcrop is like that. Uh, uh, the uh, uh, When the administrative part of it, and the administrative, or let's say the aesthetic direction of the festival, is guided by someone who himself or herself is uh, someone who makes the work, it has a somewhat different uh, emphasis. Uh, it becomes, uh, sometimes this becomes very autobiographical. You know, that happened with uh, Bernstein when he was up in Tangle. It's happened with me here already. I'm, I'm, I'm programming, uh, I'm looking at uh, music history from a very personal perspective. Now, that's something that only I can do. No one can do it. No one can have that view that I do. Uh, and so that's a way also of taking what has formed me as a composer and turning it into uh, a way of uh, a, a, a way of uh, developing and programming. I can say it, it has a direction, uh, which is it, it, it's like an arrow going to the target, no mm-hmm. falling around. It just mm-hmm. knows what it wants to do. It doesn't have to explain itself. I don't have to justify it to anybody. <laughs> I, I can say, look, this is what I do. <laughs> so, so why are you doing all this stuff? Well, that's what I've always done. Well, you, yeah. I've looked at the program a bit, and it, it looks like it has uh, a number of works by you, some some old, some more recent. Is that right? Um, That's right. Spanning your career. And then it has works by other people as well. I intend to have a, a guest composer every year. I, I, I couldn't do everything the first year. But I see that what I really would like to have is a young composer. I mean someone in their 20s. I don't mean a friend of mine. I mean someone young, someone who's thinking of new ideas. I'm very interested in the young generation, and I want to to make them part of this. I don't want it just to be about uh, 67-year-old white guys running a show. <laughs> well, who do you have this year? Who do you have this year uh, in addition to yourself? Well, uh, in terms of, uh, of the composer, I don't have very much, but I, I, I'm going to have some music. Uh, this is just being formed now. I've been, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to work with some composers and some musicians with the, with the poetry night. That's a very good way to do that because I've had a lot of experience doing poetry and music, and I've I've been talking to poets. Uh, uh, the program isn't so set yet that I can announce it, but it's just about done. And I've uh, encouraged them to bring composers with them, so there'll be other music coming in that way. And I would like that to happen also in the dance works that come up. Uh, I'm talking to the Vail uh, Dance Festival from Vail, Colorado, about co-commissioning a dance work for next year. See, this kind of thing is already happening. I haven't even done my first season. I'm always <laughs> doing collaborative work like that. But I would, I would very much be interested in, in a dance that's not not composed by me. I don't have to write everything. You oh. know, there's an, uh, there's enough of me already around there. Uh, so I'm looking for uh, bringing in. Uh, uh, right now, there hasn't been as much emphasis. But then again, I'm very intent that, uh, or rather, I intend that this first season. It should be not just good, but I want it to be remarkable. I want the quality to be high, the performances to be high, the programming to be interesting. I want it to be something you can say, well, I, I wish I could go to everything. Of course, you can't. No one goes to everything. But but uh, uh, there are things that uh, I would like to program that you don't, you may not want to miss. Well, let's talk about a couple specific performances this year. You've mentioned the, the poetry uh Evening, which uh, is curated by you and uh, Magnus Torrent of the Henry Miller yeah. Library, it takes place at the Henry Miller Library, and so you're going to have. Is it going to be sort of readings accompanied by music? Yes, uh, exactly. Is that the idea, exactly. is, and, and one with film, film and readings. Some is video, uh, video and reading uh, and poetry music. Yeah, one is. And, and the music, at least some of it, is going to be performed by your ensemble, the Philip Glass uh, Ensemble. No, no, no. <laughs> uh, 
uh, we're bringing, we, I'm going to use a string quartet that's coming. One of the ways of doing it, they'll, they'll, I, I will play something. I will play a little bit myself because I've done a lot of uh, work with Paul, so mostly on the East Coast. And I decided I would, wanted to work with people on the West Coast. I mean, it's, it'd be silly for me to go out to, to, you know, to be that close to San Francisco and not use Paul's from San Francisco. It wouldn't make any sense. But, uh, uh, so I'll play a little bit. But, uh, there's a string quartet coming in from a group called the Youth Orchestra of America. Uh, they're uh, uh, providing a string quartet to help with the other programs, and I've asked them to help with the poetry. So, uh, and some people are very interested in that. Of, I said, okay, no, uh, we need uh, some a composer to write the parts, and we're we're really making this up. And but many people haven't done this before. I know how to do it. We need to find a, a, a composer to work with a poet to 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 write the pieces, uh, to, to do the rehearsals, and, and get the piece ready. Uh, this is to me uh, really uh, can be interesting because we're we're also uh, doing something for uh, poets that they would like to do that they won't be able to do maybe that no one would would provide that for them but we can do that uh, meaning live musical accompaniment yes right yeah um, and and you mentioned uh, the quartet could you say the name again the uh, didn't the, quite the come youth through. orchestra of America youth orchestra of America. Y-O-A. Yeah, Y-O-A. It's based in Washington. Uh, le- I met them last year because they were touring in South America with a work of mine, and I went on the tour for a little while. And it's a very, very good orchestra. There are people in the mid-20s who are uh, young professionals, no question. Not, it's not a student orchestra. It's a very, uh, it's a very exciting, energized group of people with a very, with a very good conductor. The conductor is uh, Dante Anzalini, who, was con- who conducted my... Uh, the opera that met last a couple of years ago and is out uh, doing it again this year, Satyagraha. So I know him, and also he conducted works of mine in Germany, so he, in Austria. So he's a very established conductor, and he works extremely well with young people. And then I said, well, why don't we? Do you, why don't you just send me a string quartet? We'll get them coming over here. Speaking of string quartets, you're going to be performing uh, the uh, score to Dracula, as you mentioned, the uh, the, yes. the classic with Bela Lugosi, that you composed, I think, originally for string quartet. Is that right? It was I did. Performed I by did, the Kronos and quartet. I toured with uh, the Kronos quartet yeah. for a while. Yeah. And then, um, then I decided I wanted my own group to do it because there was enough work. Uh, Kronos was busy enough to even forget about it for a year or two, and <laughs> I didn't want to. And then I decided I wanted a piano part because. I wanted to play. I had written a piano part so I could play with the Kronos. The piano, I wanted to do piano playing with their quartet playing. And then we just added that to the mix. So basically, it's, it is my ensemble, and, and I'm playing uh, electric piano with it. Is, is that particular score, is, do you, is that have a special place in your heart? Is that why you picked it? Well, let me put it this way. For one thing, the, the film is a classic film, and it's an extremely popular piece. Because the film is so kind of remarkable in a way. It stands right in between the silent movies and the early talkies where there weren't any film scores then. You know? mm-hmm. uh, uh, don't forget, in, during, during the silent movies, there, there would be people that would just look at the movie and play while the movie was going mm-hmm. on. Uh, there was live music, but it wasn't usually composed. Uh, so the art, so to speak, of, of scoring for films hadn't really begun yet. This was in 1931 or 32. And so when they... Dracula was first made. They did a little bit of Tchaikovsky, uh, uh, Swan Lake for the opening credits, and that was it. Uh, there's no score. Uh, and then uh, when uh, Universal Pictures decided to re-release it as a video, they asked me to write a score. And in a certain way, I thought that I was 
I mean, it sounds, it sounds a little vain to put it that way, but I felt like I was completing the film because it needed to, it really needed to score. It, had, it was a play. It had run in London as a play for 18 months. It was a Hungarian theater. That's how Bola Lugosi came into it. And uh, there was a book written about it called uh, Dracula Over London, if you want to look it up. It's a very interesting book about a group of Hungarian actors who were traveling around uh, uh, England in the, the, ni- the 1920s, actually, late 1920s, playing Dracula. <laughs> and uh, so Todd Browning, I don't know, somehow someone put a camera in the theater, and if you look at it, you can absolutely see that it's a play that's been filmed. When you put a score to it, suddenly it's different. Then I can, the, the scenes start coming together, the, 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 the transitions become musical ones rather than those clunky moments when nothing happens and you know it's really kind of if you look at it you should, if you get it, if you look at it uh, uh, you can see it either way with with my score or without my score and if you're interested in in if anyone's interested in, in knowing what music does for uh for film it's an interesting exercise to see Dracula without the music and then see it with it well, and then ask yourself the question, what, did, what does the music do? And, and you'll figure that out right away. Well, a, a lot of people know you, a lot of the mass audience knows you at least as well from your movie scores as they do from, say, your concert works, going you know, back to Koyana Scotsi. That's and, right. Uh, and, and that, of course, is the point. It, it's, you're two decimal points away from a concert audience. I mean, I can play in Carnegie Hall with 2,000 people, but... You put a movie out, and there are two million people. <laughs> I mean, I call it. I do it by decimal points. I mean, I remember in 1982, I think Godfrey Reggio called me up and said we had already premiered it at the Radio City Music Hall, Karina Scotty, and he said oh, this Saturday night, tune into PBS because the, the movie's going to be on there. I said I was kind of not that interested. I said, I said, well, what does that mean? He said, well, I'll tell you what it means. Six million people, six million people will see it Saturday night. Yeah. And I almost fainted. It never occurred to me that six million people could hear anything of mine. Uh, the numbers just don't add up like that in concert halls. And that happened in one night. And when I think of, of what you what your music brought to that movie, I mean, the movie is inconceivable without your music. But even films that you could imagine without your music, they get a layer of... Um, emotional urgency and, and weight from, from your music. There's that, Robert, and there's another side to it, too. Sometimes movies can be in deep trouble because the actual structure of the film is so confusing that you can't follow it. And in that case, the music can actually work it out for you. That, look at the hours. Three stories, three different scenes, one after the ABC, 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 these three stories, one in Los Angeles, one in London, one in New York. That's the whole movie. Yeah, and what I was able to do with that score, I I put one piece of music to run between the three scenes. I didn't make one music for for LA, one music for New York, and one music for London. I had I did it not that way. I had the three different locations with the same theme, and that pulled the movie together. I mean, I'm not saying this. <laughs> but uh, it sounds like I, I don't mean to say that. I say it was a wonderful movie, a wonderful idea, no no question. Uh, but making it viewable and comprehensible, Mishima was another film which had big problems with the structure because of the complexity of, the, of, of it. And again, the, the Mishima score. So, it was, so uh, the one way that music can function, it doesn't always, but it can, is to actually articulate the dramatic structure of the film. I mean, that sounds like a lot of 
fancy ways of saying it makes the, it makes the movie make sense. Uh, that's really interesting. Uh, you know, I don't think I'd ever really thought of it that way. Um, so we've talked about a couple of the performances, the, the poetry evening at the Henry Miller Library, also the uh, the live accompaniment to uh, Todd Browning's Dracula uh, at the Henry Miller Library. Any other specific performances you'd like to well, uh, single out? Uh, the opening two, uh, the opening of four concerts are actually chamber music, classical chamber music, God help us, <laughs> um, and very, very good players. Uh, most of them have uh I played with before we've been uh there's a work of minus sextet for strings that's actually from a symphony along with another with the Schoenberg sextet. I mean by doing that I'm able to I, I did it for a certain particular reason. I wanted to something that people don't that I'm so closely associated with amplified music, but when you put the music into 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 the hands of uh, let's say you do a violin piano piano sonata acoustically then you're talking about something else. And yet it's the same composer and, and, and it's the same musical expression in a certain way. So uh, what I did, I put my, my own, let's say, chamber music using uh, classically, you know, what you would expect of what chamber music would be, violin, piano, some, the, uh, string quartets, uh, string sextet, uh, piano by itself. Uh, when you put that uh, next to, let's say, Bartok, Schoenberg, Schubert, Mendelssohn, uh, and say, well, you know, maybe it is that different. I don't mean that it's, that it's as good as Mendelssohn and Schubert. <laughs> I don't mean that, but I mean that, that in, in terms of the genre, that maybe, the, you know, we always think of these great dram dramatic changes in music, and I think in a sense it's true. And yet when we step back a little bit uh, and look at it, it doesn't. When I step back and look at uh, Stravinsky, Stravinsky's work, for example, I completely hear how it, it relates to Rimsky-Korsakov and to Tchaikovsky. Sure. And then sure. moves straight into the future. It, through these breaks that seem so dramatic and uh, radical, with the, become softened with time, and we see them as organic and inevitable almost uh, developments in music. And uh, I like the idea that. That, I, that my music still relates to that you can hear you can hear Bartok and you can hear me and say yeah well then maybe Glass got some ideas from Bartok and guess what he did <laughs> and maybe I got ideas from Schubert and guess what I did you know that's that's true uh, so th that kind of lineage let's talk about it that way the lineage of concert music it's the great gift of the composer it's also the, the biggest problem you have because it's a how do you how do you write after things like the Grosse Fugue of Beethoven the Lake Quartets and the and the six quartets of Bartok and the four quartets of Schoenberg and the, the quartets of Shostakovich. How, who would dare to write a string quartet? God help them, you know. And yet, uh, we do. Yeah. We do. You, you want to because it's a way of having a conversation with your past. At the same time, it's a, it's a perilous, uh, uh, um, experiment, exercise to make because you put yourself, you do a string quartet on the same program with, uh, with, uh, Shostakovich string quartet, you're you're asking for trouble, and yet uh, if you if you aren't asking for trouble, then you just become a record collector and you go get a job somewhere else, right? <laughs> That's not so bad, but for some of us, the desire to have that conversation is is too overwhelming. We just have to do it. Well, well, how's that for a slogan? Uh, the Days and Nights Festival. Uh, taking place August 19th through September 4th, 2011, asking for trouble for two weeks. 
I think asking for trouble is good. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, thanks a lot, and we're looking forward to it. And, and so this is going to become a, a, an annual event. I hope so. I expect it will. That's their plan, and that's their hope, and that's their will to do so. And as we said, Philip Glass will be performing at the new Days and Nights Festival in Big Sur and Carmel Valley, August 19th through September 4th. You can find a complete program of events at daysandnightsfestival.com. As mentioned, two of the festival events will be taking place at the Henry Miller Library in Big Sur. On Wednesday, August 31st, it's an evening of poetry curated by Philip Glass and Magnus Torin of the Henry Miller Library, with poets reading their work to live musical accompaniment by Philip Glass and the Youth of America's String Quartet. And the following night, Thursday, September 1st, it's the Philip Glass Ensemble performing Philip's original score to Todd Browning's 1931 film, Dracula, while the movie screens. You can find out more about all the events taking place at the Henry Miller Library at their website, henrymiller.org. That's henrymiller.org. And speaking of Philip Glass and festivals, the Cabrillo Festival of Contemporary Music kicks off its 2011 season a week from today. Philip Glass has a long history with the festival, and he'll be premiering a new work dedicated to his old friend Marin Alsop on her 20th anniversary as music director of the Cabrillo Festival. Philip's piece is part of the festival's opening night concert on Friday, August 5th, and we'll be broadcasting that concert right here on KUSP Live, as we do every year. For more on all the Cabrillo Festival concerts and events, check out cabrillofestival.org. And this has been the 7th Avenue Project. Robert Polly, your host here, saying goodbye until next week. Check us out on the web at 7thAvenueProject.com. <laughs>